Rather than having made prudent life choices all along, most of us tend to only seek healthful solutions once we've had a scare in the form of a diagnosis or event. This is HealthScape with Dr. Trevor Campbell. In this program, we'll show you the techniques, innovations, and holistic ideas that you can use to put yourself on the path to better health. Now, here is Dr. Trevor Campbell. Good day, and welcome to HealthScape. I'm your host, Dr. Trevor Campbell. Today, we discuss the enigma of sleep that for ages was viewed as our shadow side, steeped in mystery and a good deal of intrigue. Far from being simply tuned out, science has shown us that sleep is actually a hive of internal activity, much of it of a janitorial nature that is pivotal to our health and well-being. My guest today is Dr. Raymond Gottschalk. Dr. Gottschalk studied medicine at the University of Cape Town, graduating cum laude, in 1981. After emigrating to Canada, he completed a residency program in internal medicine at the University of Calgary, becoming chief resident and then started his respiratory medicine training. He did research on airway inflammation and biology with a special interest in cellular dispersion methods for assessing airway inflammation. He was on staff at the Calgary General Hospital and later opened a sleep clinic a sleep medicine practice in Hamilton, Ontario. In education, he is co-director of the Sleep Medicine and Training Program at McMaster University. He has been co-chair for the last two publications for the clinical practice parameters for the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Ontario, both in respiratory and sleep medicine. He is medical director for the Sleep Disorders Clinic, quality advisor, Medical Director for Vital Air Canada and holds medical licensure in several provinces. The Sleep Clinic is actively engaged in research activities as well as sleep medicine and respiratory activities. Dr. Gottschalk provides input to industry with respect to sleep medications and is on advisory boards for various pharmaceutical companies. Raymond, welcome to HealthScape. Great to have you here. Thank you very much, Trevor. That was a very warm and very effusive introduction. So I thank you for those kind words. Well, not, not too kind, I assure you. So, Raymond, what are the most important functions of sleep to dive right into the deep end? Trevor, that is one of the questions that I think is bedeviling us all, because if you look at sleep from the perspective of unconsciousness, it is a state of reversible unconsciousness, which leaves us obviously very vulnerable. And you can imagine that in days gone by when we lived out in the forest, uh, if we did sleep like the dead, we would certainly become the dead. So trying to look at it from the perspective of a restorative nature, which we obviously understand that it is because blood pressure drops during sleep, your pulse rate goes down, metabolism goes down, but sleep is mainly a function by the brain for the brain. And obviously, because the brain is this unbelievable supercomputer with 100 billion neurons in it, we feel that to a large degree, aspects of sleep allow the brain's neuronal circuitry to actually get activity that it wouldn't normally get during the day. So if you imagine during the daytime, you've got various circuits that are working. There are other support circuits that are not working. And as we know, the old adage, if you don't use it, you lose it. Mm -hmm. And so sleep in one component is to actually put electrical activity through all of the circuitry. Um, and, and so, you know, that's one of the components of it to allow the brain to recover and repair. And the analogy that I provide my patients, it's really like sort of filling in the potholes and painting the white lines so you can function properly the next day. The more okay. enigmatic issue here is why we become paralyzed at certain points during sleep, such as when we go into dreaming sleep or REM sleep. Uh, and that is quite enigmatic and a lot of controversy surrounds that. Yes, yeah, um, for sure. Raymond, how prevalent are the sleep disorders? We hear a lot that it's kind of on the increase, right? 
Yeah, well, Trevor, the nice thing for me is <laughs> I've actually got a job for life uh, <laughs> because you throw in uh, a, a cataclysmic uh, you know, disease like COVID and this plague has vaulted sleep disturbances up, you know, at least 100%. Uh, we call coronasomnia. One of the big concerns uh, with, with our sleep now is that people are so frightened. The news is frightening. Uh, just, you know, political discourse is frightening. The world is frightening. People are threatening each other. And so I, I think the toxicity of our world coupled with this pandemic has made it much worse. Typically, what we felt was that in Canada, we felt that around 16% of the population, 13 to 16% had a problem with an insomnia disorder where they were dissatisfied with their sleep. They weren't falling asleep, weren't staying asleep. And then sleep apnea, we can get variations in numbers, uh, but it's anywhere so up to a third of the population can have some level of sleep breathing disturbance. And uh, really, there are well over 100 different sleep disorders, and uh, it certainly looks at times as if we're making some of these things up. Um, because uh, when we go back to uh, Dr. William Dement, who was one of the fathers of sleep medicine, um, some I think it was Johnny Carson interviewed him mm -hmm. uh, on, on TV and asked him, uh, Dr. Dement, uh, why do we sleep? And he looked Johnny Carson straight back in the eye and said, so we can function properly the next day. And Carson laughed and said, yeah, you guys, you're just making it up as you go. Um, but in essence, uh, that, that really is the, uh, I think that's a sagacious and, and short answer. We sleep at night so we can function properly the next day. Right, right. No, for sure. I mean, we, uh, somebody once made the quote, um, we're uh, tall babies the next day if we don't sleep properly. The, the dysfunction is, is intense. Yeah. Um, my next question was going to be, why are they becoming more so? Obviously, COVID is a big one. But, um, you know, I, I am very uh, concerned about the fact that you can't really escape light. I, I don't know how big that is in the hierarchy of the, you know, the pathology sort of thing. But, um, you know, there was a time when we grew up, um, it was, you know, the suburbs were kind of darker and there wasn't this constant light intrusion. And I kind of wonder, I know it's not a major cause, but... Um, no, that, that's an excellent time. question. Uh, no, thank, thank you, Trevor. It was like I planted that question for myself <laughs> uh, because light is... We call light a Zeitgeber, you know, from the German. It gives you a cue. Oh. And, and so bright light is the most effective mechanism to mm. switch off your production of melatonin. Right. Uh, melatonin is the hormone of darkness. And because of all of us being addicted to our screens, our phones, and many patients I see who are actually watching movies on, on their tablets or their phones or their computers quite close to them. And I think if we go back to that, horrible but elegant topic of physics, uh, we know that the light intensity um, is really far greater the closer something is to you in, by a log fold. Mm -hmm. So holding a, a tablet next to your face or a, a screen will result in the emission of light, an activity that will then delay your melatonin release, which will then delay your sleeping rhythm. So light is a major factor. And in fact, for most of us who actually work in very dim environments, and you'll see that in nursing homes uh, where the patients are exposed to very low levels of light, they then sleep during the day and then they cannot sleep at night. Um, so the function of light is to get you up in the morning and the light goes off at night to get you out at night. Mm -hmm. And uh, unfortunately, Edison in his genius has given us the opportunity to have light at any time we choose. And with the portability of these light emitting devices, uh, we're in a lot of trouble. So one of the pointers I always give to my patients is to put uh, either use blue light blocking glasses if you're going to have a screen close to you, or use one of the apps that removes blue light, which is the most potent uh, cause of melatonin suppression. Right. I have found those glasses, I've worn them for about two years now, to be really helpful. Yes. 
And, and I think what we also need to recognize is that many parents, and I, I also see children with sleep disorders, um, they have given their children the gift of uh, some of these Xbox machines mm -hmm. that generate both a lot of light sound, hand-eye coordination. And there are studies that I've read from Australia where people have been playing these games, young fellows who have actually dropped dead. They've, they've had a cardiac event from the hyperexcitability of it. And then they become surprised when their kids can't settle down and go to sleep at night. Right. So all of these things, you know, they have, they've taken precedence now, given the pandemic where we've been locked up. And there's been much more utilization of all of those, as you've seen with, with the surging prices of some of these remote uh, uh, providers of activity for online services and games. Mm -hmm. And the pandemic in and of itself has, has given and taken, uh, apart from the anxiety issue, it's also allowed people to gain a lot of weight because they couldn't go back uh, to, to their usual activities, the gym being one of them. Mm -hmm. um, and also, obviously, the, the development of a depression because people have been incarcerated in, in, their, in their homes, too frightened to go out. So when you start getting people gaining weight, you start developing other issues in sleep, such as sleep apnea, which is very positively correlated with weight gain. Right. <clears throat> yeah, sure. And there's been an increase in that for sure. Now, to just to change tack for a moment, what has been the greatest insight, in your opinion, in the field of sleep medicine over the last decade or so? Oh, Trevor, that, that's a... A tough question in a way because there are so many brilliant things that are happening now. Uh, we're looking at the measurement of sleep. I, I think to 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 answer your question directly, I think the development of portable devices to allow us to evaluate sleep. Heisenberg did state it quite clearly that when you measure something, you change it. And in fact, all scientific measures are really derivative. We know that. And so when you measure something, you're changing it. And very much of the same is, is with a sleep study. When you bring someone into a sleep clinic and you're putting on tons of electrodes, obviously you're going to impact their sleep in ways that they are sleeping differently compared to home. But some of these newer devices that are available that are portable, they're not connected by any wiring and they have a far smaller imprint on your body those are absolutely fascinating. So that's one aspect that is really excellent. Another major issue is the development of novel sleeping medications, ones that are not based on the typical benzodiazepines, the Valium-type family medications, which we all know um, have been given a lot of bad press. But these newer ones, understanding the neurochemistry of sleep disorders and, and the genetics of these sleep disorders has really been fascinating. So if, I, if you give me the latitude of stating uh, the three areas that I've found completely fascinating, uh, it is the development um, of these portable monitoring devices to measure sleep and measuring brainwave activity during sleep, uh, the understanding of the neurochemistry and the neuropharmacology, and the development of some of these novel medications that really have a profound impact on sleep in a positive way without the legacy problems associated with benzodiazepine type medications. Right, right. Well, that's, that's very, um, you know, that's very uh, encouraging, right? That there's been so many, you know, normally one, when one asks somebody something like the last year, 10 years, they give you one or two. So three things, it's, it's <laughs> yeah. sounding very good. We, we like things in threes. <laughs> easier to remember in a way. Yeah. Um, walk us through the various sleep disorders, if you would, please, Raymond. Sure. More or less, I mean, we don't need exact figures. Well, it's never exact figures anyway, but, you know, just common to, to least less common. Yes. I, I think the... There are quite, quite a couple of sleep disorders that have impact on daytime function that, that are quite profound. And obviously, the bread and butter of most sleep disorders is sleep apnea. Mm -hmm. And in essence, sleep apnea is, is a fairly simple mechanistic problem. And I explain to people that sleep apnea is the analogy I'd like you to use is to imagine you're breathing through a piece of garden hose 
piece of hose pipe mm-hmm. and you bend it 90 degrees and you imagine that the hose pipe starts at your nose, goes to the back of your throat, bends 90 degrees and goes into your lung. And so you, the little homunculus down at the bottom end in the lungs, sucking the air in. Mm-hmm. And it's easy to see that if you're sucking through a pipe, it's going to be hard if the pipe is narrow. And if the pipe is collapsible, the harder you suck, the more it's going to collapse. And okay. so in essence, what we have is, is really a glorified plumbing problem where the airway is too small and it's made too small if the neck is made too big or the tongue is made too big. And there's a good correlation between stomach size. In other words, the amount of fat that we store in our abdomen, we store fat in our neck and we store fat in the tongue. So that impresses itself upon that pipe, narrowing it even more. And so for a lot of people, that's the generation of sleep apnea in essence, that it's a narrow pipe and weight gain has provoked it. And when you have people who have body mass indices of 40, and a good way to remember what a perfect body mass index would be for you would be to take your height in centimeters. And uh, Trevor, I know you're about 193 centimeters tall. Um, So your weight should be 93 kilograms to give you a perfect body mass index. And that's just a a rough and ready measure. So take the last two digits of your height and put that in kilograms and you have to have it in centimeters. That's typically what your weight should be. So we feel that a good body mass index is 25 or below. And we talk about people being obese if the body mass index is 30. And we classify it as class one, two, and three obesity Mm -hmm. uh, if you going above 40, you class three. So most people who have a BMI above 40 would really, but you've got 40, 50% of those people will have sleep apnea. So that is probably, you know, the most underdiagnosed because almost everyone snores and we have obesity rates now that are, and overweight rates that are up to two thirds of the population. <laughs> it is now becoming endemic in young children. And I see eight-year-olds who weigh almost double what I weigh. Uh, and it's, it's, it's absolutely tragic. Yes. Um, so sleep apnea is, is a very, very common uh, complaint. Obviously, snoring, which is the baby brother of sleep apnea or baby sister to be uh, egalitarian. Um, and it is not as, as uh, potentially lethal, but it, it can be very disturbing and disruptive to, to family life. Mm-hmm. Then we have insomnias. And that is probably, so out of the practice that we see, most of our patients either have a sleep apnea or insomnia disturbance where they cannot get to sleep or they cannot stay asleep or their rhythm of sleep is disturbed, throw into that mix shift work. And uh, shift work, unfortunately, is one of the most egregious problems for for, um, overall health because people who are working the night shift, their melatonin levels are distorted they have higher prevalence of cancers, and it's, it's just really awful. And when they're driving home in the morning, they are functionally impaired. So right. shift work is, a, is another big thing. And some of the more unusual uh, conditions that we see, uh, well, n- not that unusual, restless legs where people cannot sit still. They feel the urge to move, and this interferes with them getting to sleep and interferes with them staying asleep. And then there are some uh, really more worrisome conditions such as REM sleep behavior disorder, where people act out their dreams. Typically, when we in dreaming sleep, we are paralyzed. And in these people who have this issue, they are unable to maintain that paralysis. So they have a dream that is often disturbing. They can lash out, they can hit their bed partner, or they can hurt themselves, fall out of bed jump out of bed and and that's quite a violent disorder and it's very, very disturbing. Uh, A fairly worrisome condition that we deal with quite a lot as well is narcolepsy, which is, uh, again, it's a brain-related issue where people are abnormally sleepy. And uh, there was an outbreak of it, um, uh, was it 2008, um, uh, when they used uh, the pandemics vaccine for influenza, it's not happened subsequently. And they felt, and we see that with influenza, every influenza season, there's an upsurge in cases of narcolepsy because the influenza virus has some similarity to those cells in the brain that keep us alert. And so when you make an antibody to the uh, influenza virus, it causes a reaction in the brain where the antibodies look at the brain cells that make the specific substance called orexin, 
and they say, all right, you look like influenza, I'm going to knock you out too. And uh, so people can develop narcolepsy from that. And so those are the most common things we see. I mean, there are a whole lot of other very unusual things that, that we can see, such as the adults who sleepwalk, uh, other behavioral abnormalities, uh, sleep eating, sleep sex, and all of those that, that are real phenomena. And uh, they, they are quite intriguing and, and very, very disruptive in people's lives. I can imagine. Um... I just talking when you while you were talking about the snoring, I could not think of that quote. Um, you know, when you're smiling, the whole world smiles with you, but when you're snoring, you sleep alone. Yes, <laughs> it's, it's Anthony Burgess from the Clockwork or the guy who wrote the Clockwork Orange. Yes, yeah, no, that that is certainly it's. Uh, I mean, there are all these apocryphal stories of Wyatt Earp or one of those guys who, yes. or really the kid who shot yeah, the right. guy next to him who was snoring so loudly. <laughs> right. Uh, okay, now for those of us who are aging, say over 60 and getting to the higher levels of, of age, um, you know, perhaps having the odd mild sleep problem, like not as before. I remember people saying when I had my first um, encounter with this, so the reason you don't sleep like a baby is because you're not a baby, right? Um, but what due diligence do you advise to maximize the sleep experience? They don't see it as, frankly, a problem, or they have chosen not to make it a problem at present. Yes. So they're not thinking to see a physician or uh, get some sort of professional help yet. Well, Trevor, the reality is that if you go back to Shakespearean times, and you can see, uh, and in fact, that there's a recent article in The Atlantic that is, and I didn't, I haven't read it yet, but I just saw the, the headline banner on it, talking about the first sleep and the second sleep. And uh, so in the days before uh, our light bulbs and the availability of electricity, mm -hmm. people would go to sleep at sundown, well, you know, after the sun went down, and then they'd wake up around midnight or so and then have a meal and uh, the husband and wife would chat together, etc. because, I mean, everyone slept in the same bed, so they wanted some time alone. And that, that was quite typical. They'd have their first sleep, they'd have their second sleep. And so what we have developed is the concept, and it's a misaligned concept, that sleep is a light switch. It's not a light switch. You don't turn it off and then turn it on in the morning. And that's our expectation. And often it's that mismatched expectation yeah. that will result in us getting more anxious about sleep issues. And so to answer the question about an older person who's having sleep difficulty where there is no accompanying problem during the day, then we tend to ignore it. We say to them, you know, obviously we give you pointers and we don't ignore it, but we, we explain that it is not a fundamental lack of, of anything because sleep does fragment as we get older. Uh, the, uh, and again, I'm full of analogies, but the one I like to use is that when you get older, you like the older lion. You need to wake up and outsmart the young guy who wants to come and push you out of the tribe, um, the pride. So in essence, you know, sleep does deteriorate with age. We understand that. Uh, but the one benefit of aging is that we tolerate sleep deprivation way better than, say, a, a teenager or a 20-year-old who would be incoherent with sleep restriction, where yeah. we would just be grumpy. And the same, of course, applies to physical activity. They handle yes. inactivity way, way better, right? <laughs> yeah. Problems than, uh, than in older people. Yes. Okay. Um, now, medication or the so-called hypnotic group, uh, drugs to make one sleep, can be a game changer in certain respects. But these can also, of course, be dangerous and have unfavorable outcomes if used for lengthy periods. Now, it is entirely possible that hypnotics as a drug class are more often used, and in fact, I do believe they're more often used off monograph than other drugs, or they're up there among the, the leaders of, of that category. Are you in agreement? Yes. Uh, and, uh, you know, as we ascribe the off monograph or off label yes. use of these drugs. Uh, certainly, the sleeping pills themselves, they are defined sleeping pills. The drugs like Valium, uh, the diazepams, anything that ends in PAM is, is of the benzodiazepine family. 
But the more commonly used shorter sleeping uh, medications, the shorter acting ones like Zopiclin, Zolpidem, the Z ones, Zaleplon. And now there are newer ones, the, the uh, orexin antagonists such as uh, Lemborexant or, uh, or Davigo that we have here. And, and they're a concatenation of other drugs that are used for sleep. But you're right, most people are taking off-label drugs, whether they're over-the-counter things like diphenhydramine, the gravols, which we don't like because it does percolate into, into the memory banks and interferes with it and makes people unsteady. But yes, there are a lot of antidepressants that are used off-label. There are antipsychotics that people use to try and turn down that hamster on a wheel that some people have running around in their heads when they complain of insomnia. So sleeping medications have been given a very, very bad rap right. in, in some way, unfairly so. But on the other hand, when coupled with other medications such as uh, painkillers, opioids, they can have a lethal outcome. Uh, they can suppress the breathing and obviously they can impair you and anyone who is driving in the morning after taking some of these drugs may well be impaired and have an equivalency of you know, over the 0 0.8 uh, alcohol level. And so I think hypnotic medications have a role. And I do have some patients who I have been prescribing hypnotic medications to them because nothing else works. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the, I think in, in medicine, we, we always try and follow the maxim of primum non natura, first do harm, but that does not mean do no good. Right. And I think we've become so frightened uh, in, in our pursuit of, of trying to follow every single guideline that we lose sight. Um, you know, as Maimonides said, always see the patient in front of you. It's not, they're not a disease. Um, and Sorry, Raymond, at that point, we have to take a break. Are we going to take a break for a while? You're listening to Healthscape with your host, Dr. Trevor Campbell, talking to Dr. Raymond Gottschall, sleep and respiratory medicine expert. Are you satisfied with your chronic pain treatment? Chronic pain experts agree that recovery can only occur when the psychological and social issues which help trigger and drive the chronic pain are treated along with the other problems. Medications, injection therapy and a range of physical therapies may provide temporary relief of symptoms, but they don't actually address the root causes that drive the chronic pain. I'm Dr. Trevor Campbell, a chronic pain consultant and author of The Language of Pain, a self-help book for those struggling with chronic pain. Add this type of therapy to your existing treatment plan and experience the difference. Get your copy of my book, The Language of Pain, on Amazon. And for further direction, there's also The Language of Pain online course available on my website, www.trevorcampbellmd.com. Act now to take back your life. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Healthscape with Dr. Trevor Campbell. If you have a question or comment about the show, please send an email to host at trevorcampbellmd.com. Now back to the show. You're listening to Healthscape with your host, Dr. Trevor Campbell and Dr. Raymond Gottschall, dissecting the nature of sleep. Raymond, just to come back to the off-label, off-monograph, I should have made it clearer for my listeners. Um, off-label is when a drug is used other than what it was for which it was manufactured, right? That's correct, yes. So that, that's commonly done, even in pediatrics. And I can say, tell you from the pain... Uh, arena, the chronic pain area of medicine, most of our drugs we do use are just about off-label. You know, they membrane stabilizers, old-fashioned antidepressants, anticonvulsants, and that's standard. And I think the, the, what I was trying to say is that the, 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 the hypnotics, while used off-label because they're used as hypnotics, the gravel and so forth, they also tend to, when people don't get what they want out of the drug, 
they go against what the manufacturer has advised on, on the monograph. And I, I've seen people on three Zoppic clones a night for months uh, for the first time, you know, I've, I, when I say for the first time, because obviously you, you recommend a taper. When I think the monograph um, would, would be, um, you know, is, it doesn't suggest anything like that. So there is quite a bit of, bit of that I have found, but obviously you see way more cases. So I thought I'd. Yes. Um, so, so Trevor, unfortunately, you know, I, I think once again, we, we can't lose sight of who's in front of us. And, you know, that, that's a human who is really, really struggling. And yes, three Zarpiclone is, is profoundly elevated and it will probably be doing nothing useful for the sleep because at that level, mm -hmm. there are all senses of, of rebound and, and deterioration and degradation of sleep. And I think that's where the hypnotics really do have a bit of a problem because the type of sleep they provoke is not natural or normal a large portion of them. There are some that don't actually interfere with the architectural aspect of sleep, but there are others that really appear to make the sleep quality much worse. But because it deactivates the consciousness level, people feel unconscious, but they're not really sleeping properly. Right. Right. And uh, so, so that's where it becomes a problem. And Health Canada, obviously, uh, there are different uh, authorities uh, on, on every which side of every border, uh, but these medications, the hypnotic medications such as Zopiclone and, and, and Zolpidem, the monograph actually says you shouldn't give it for more than two weeks. That's right. Now, yeah. now you know, the, yeah. the problem intrinsic with that is, uh, you know, if you have someone with hypertension, you don't get them medications for two weeks and say, okay, now you better. Um, so in essence, until the issue is settled and, and the condition has been right. managed, you're going to have people who won't participate in the alternatives that you're offering them, mm -hmm. you know, some of the behavioral approaches to insomnia, and they, they stay on the medication. And at what point do you deny them therapy? I have some doctor colleagues who've told me, well, patients have told me, the doctor doesn't want to see me anymore because I still smoke. And, you know, and, and I think it's try and understand the, the principle and process of addiction um, you do want to provide care. You don't withdraw care because of that. Right. So, yeah, it's, it's a, a huge problem. The inconveniences can't be used as a don't preclude treatment. No, absolutely. Um, just tell us something more about the investigations that are available, please. Um, well, we have investigations that are such as formal sleep studies. Mm -hmm. So it depends what you're looking for. Um, in many cases, when we have a sleep disorder, if it's something like a sleep apnea where people are snoring and stopping breathing, there are a couple of ways that you can evaluate them. You can use questionnaires which are notoriously poor. Uh, they, they give you predictabilities of 60% sometimes, so that's really not helpful. No. Um, so you want some objective testing. By objective testing, I mean by a sleep study, either in the sleep clinic or at home, and depending on how many sensors, how many measuring devices you put on the patient, that will determine the clarity and the accuracy of your testing. Mm -hmm. So there are home-based sleep tests or what we call uh, uh, home sleep tests, HSTs. We have new devices. We've just evaluated a couple of them um, in, in, our, in our lab, and there are there are even smaller and smaller devices now that they're coming out with that just measure, you know, one parameter such as snoring and sound. So they they estimating from the sounds how much apnea is likely present. So those are the the typical technologies that we use for sleep apnea assessment. A very crude ways to measure nighttime oxygen level, and obviously people are using wearables as well. Uh, the the smart watches now can pick up things that uh, we never thought they could. Not that they're perfect, but again, they can give a good idea. Uh, there are, interestingly, there are some uh, very, very helpful spinal fluid tests for a condition such as narcolepsy. And uh, obviously, no one's going to line up to get a lumbar puncture. Uh, but, you know, that we can measure a substance in the brain called orexin. And if it's below a level of 110, 
picograms per per liter, it's um, it's consistent with the diagnosis of narcolepsy. So th that's quite interesting that we have some some lab tests. We have certain blood tests uh, that we can look at various um, various markers uh, for conditions. Um, we have the in-laboratory testing that we use for people where we think that they have uh, the narcolepsy condition, where we actually put them to bed during the day as well and measure how quickly they get to sleep after they've had an overnight sleep that we can analyze. So the sleep lab in that way is, is quite helpful. We obviously test people for sleep apnea. We treat them. Uh, we treat them with uh, positive airway pressure devices, the CPAP machines or BiPAP machines or whatever type of nocturnal ventilatory machines. So those are the typical tests we do. There are obviously some interesting other testing that is ongoing, which is uh, sort of beyond the scope of, of this talk probably, such as you know brain scanning to look for areas that light up in various conditions, um, you know, testing for... Uh, Alzheimer's disease and, and things like that. So, uh, the, but the major thrust of our testing at this point is, is really based on uh, sleep laboratory testing or home-based sleep testing for sleep apnea. Um, you and your, your colleagues, do you view sleep disorders primarily as a biobehavioral, as biobehavioral disorders? Or is it yes. a hybrid? Well, it's... If you, if you think about, I suppose, is obesity a behavioral disorder, a biobehavioral disorder? It probably is. Um, and yes, I mean, you know, almost all of the sleep disorders are, are brain generated to a degree. If you look at the degenerative disorders, the, there, are, there are obviously sleep disorders that are related to neuromuscular diseases, muscular dystrophies and things like that. Um, and iron deficiency, as in restless legs, where people have very, very low iron levels and iron really struggles to get into the brain. The brain is sort of like Fort Knox. You can't get in and you can't get out. Um, and uh, so iron, if the iron levels aren't high enough, people can develop quite severe restlessness in their legs. And that, that can be a complete sleep thief. It, it can be very, very disruptive. Um, the you know, there, there are really a sort of concatenation of, of other disorders that, that I suppose if you look at an insomnia disturbance from the perspective of a hypervigilance and a learned behavior, the lovely thing for me is that I did have insomnia in my second year of medicine, uh, which, as, as you would recall, uh, was the year of anatomy and physiology, which was a, a grotesque year. But uh, it caused so much anxiety for me. I, I got frightened about sleep. I couldn't get to sleep or stay asleep. And uh, I think that was probably one of the reasons why sleep medicine was so interesting to me, because I can look back at it and think, wow, we didn't have one lecture, not one lecture at all in my entire medical school career on sleep, not one word about sleep. Yeah. And we didn't know where sleep apnea wasn't invented at that time. Uh, I don't think I ever saw a narcolepsy patient. I'd never heard of restless legs. So, so all, of the, all of these things were mysterious. But uh, to go back to the, the biobehavioral issue, um, yes, these, these conditions are, they generated largely in the brain. And insomnia is, is, is a brain, it's a mismatch between the alertness and the sleep. You know, it's uh, the the imbalance should always favor alertness because alertness keeps us alive. Sure. Uh, but when the disturbance in sleep becomes so severe that awake wakefulness keeps percolating into sleep, mm -hmm. uh, then the the impact is profound. Yeah, and then which leads on to the next, and half explains the next question that CBT cognitive behavioral therapy has now become the gold standard really for sleep disorders, right? Well, the absolutely, yeah, yeah, for insomnia, absolutely, for insomnia, but yes. for um, but also for many other chronic conditions and mental disorders, and obviously suggests that the sleep disorder is also the, the disease of the brain, and I mention this because with chronic pain, it's the same sort of story, and yet there's often when you make the the contention, you often offend people with chronic pain that there's something. It's a disorder of the brain. It's the pain's manifesting, is manifested or experienced, but that the going on is in the brain. 
Yes. So you kind of asked, answered that question already, I guess, unless you want to add something. Well, well, Trevor, you know, not, not to toot your horn, but your, your book, The Language of Pain, draws so many analogies and, and parallels with sleep. It's, it's phenomenal, actually. And it, it was really nice for me to read that way back. And in that, you bring up the concept of learned behavior, and insomnia is a to many people it becomes a learned behavior. They have a maladaptive response to it. They do all the things that you think are right. You spend more time in bed, and you get and you worry about sleep. And the best thing you can tell people is, if you can loosen yourself from that concept. And I, I tell my patients, you know, if you can really think about sleep and say, I don't give a hoot about my sleep, and really undercut mm-hmm. the, the profound impact that the, the pursuit of sleep has on these people. It's, it's remarkable. You can develop an obsessive compulsive disturbance that, that is, is really, it's, it's, it's quite ruinous. And when I tell patients that I understand what they're experiencing, you know, obviously sharing a little bit of, of, of historical information with them and say, I know you've got the hamster on a wheel, you can't shut it down. And their eyes light up and they say, you actually know what, you know, you know what I'm feeling. Right. Uh, because, because this is, you know, they just can't switch things off. And because they don't have the toolkit to manage that. And, mm-hmm. you know, doing something like a, a cognitive behavioral course takes time. Sure. It, you need a therapist. And in many provinces, it's not covered. And, uh, you know, at a couple of hundred dollars an hour, some people don't have that disposable income. And so we look at the online things that are helpful and there are monographs that are helpful. But, but certainly it's, it's, it's a very, very pervasive disorder that, that really hooks itself and then carries on with itself, just as you explained with chronic pain. Right, really the law of... of um Reversed intention, right? Yeah, absolutely. Trying, trying so hard, it, it comes kind of thing. Um, Raymond, in your opinion, which category of research, you mentioned uh, the neurotransmitter, you mentioned uh, the measure, measurement uh, apparatus, which category of research, in your opinion, at this time, holds the most possibility for the improved treatment of sleep disorders? It could be any, it doesn't have to be all, of course. No, no, no. Certainly the the, the measurement, the the, the measurement aspect, I I think once we understand things better um, and a lot of knowledge in sleep, it's obviously incremental and there are stepwise improvements in the evaluation, understanding, and the dissection of understanding sleep. For years, we used a 1968 classification to identify the various stages of sleep. And uh, recently, one of uh, our most renowned scientists in Canada, Dr. Magdi Yunus, he published, I I think it was probably about 2014, 2015. He looked at the micro architecture of sleep. So what he was looking at was brain waves, little squiggles and trying to figure out, can you predict anything from the micro architecture of sleep? Because what we would normally do is we would just look at the macro architecture. In other words, we would get all these squiggles on a piece of paper and people would look at it and give it a classification. This is stage, what sleep or whatever. And he broke it down into little tiny little aliquots with, with computerized assistance, obviously, which is reproducible. And he's come out with some absolutely fascinating ideas, even trying to predict how people would respond to CPAP, therapy for sleep apnea. Would they be a responder or would they not be a responder? So this, this stuff is absolutely fascinating. You know, looking at, at conditions um, and, and he's come up with the concept of an odds ratio product, an ORP, just looking at the depth of sleep and trying to understand who would respond and how they would respond, you know, to what type of therapy. So, so that to me is, is a game changing evaluation. And also there is a plethora at the moment of, of new devices coming onto the market that is looking at just trying to allow people to have a sleep test done at home 
you know, without having to deal with with uh, restrictions related to the, this uh, plague of virus and also the inconvenience and and sleep disruption related to a sleep laboratory assessment. So certainly the the I think that the measuring of, of sleep and the micro-architecture of sleep is, is quite fascinating. Yeah, it sounds great, groundbreaking. Um, yeah, to break it down like that and, and be able to predict, it's... it's yeah, that's... Because yeah. we, we've, we've actually been involved uh, and we, we're doing a study with them now, just looking at uh, trying to validate some of the equipment, uh, which is, it's, it's been a fascinating endeavour. But these very very bright people, you know, coming up with these ideas that are that are truly sort of revolutionary and pushing pushing the the science of sleep far ahead. Right, um, Raymond. Uh, this is kind of a fun question. Very interesting to me, in any case, and hopefully to others as well. But the cap the capacity to dream uh, is almost universal, and it's enculturated in history, literature, the arts. Uh, it's had a very convoluted and interesting and highlighted history, I think, uh, I believe. What is the current feeling scientifically about the origin of dreams? Is it from the one end symbolic messaging from the unconscious or what some people call the subconscious, or simply the floor sweepings of the quote-unquote tangles and remains of yesterday? Yeah. So I, I think, Trevor, the, the lovely thing about whatever I say now cannot be refuted <laughs> because there are, the <laughs> there are sides of this coin uh, where, where almost no one can agree completely. Yeah. But, oh, but no. what it's felt in essence, I mean, why? So you look at sleep. So look at sleep from the perspective of how we imagine it now. We want to spend between six and eight hours in an unconscious state. That's bizarre to start with. Second, during this, we periodically go into dreaming sleep every 90 minutes, 60 to 90 minutes, and there's more and more dreaming sleep until, until morning. And during dreaming sleep, instead of the blood pressure going down as it does in general sleep, you get blood pressure spikes and surges, You're, you become completely paralyzed, and you change the brain blood flow pattern compared to non-dreaming sleep. During this time, you start having these mentations, your sleep mentation, which is dreaming. Uh, you know, the, the variation of these things can be, can be profound. And so it's felt this is something done by the brain for the brain. Maybe it's doing something to try and improve learning. What we do know that non-dreaming sleep, uh, the non-REM sleep, uh, that is most helpful uh, when you're trying to uh, trying to in, in, encode and incorporate learned patterns of, of activity, motor skills, etc. Whereas dreaming is, is felt to be some portion of, of dealing with emotional memory. Now, obviously, that leads to the whole concept of why we all dream. And, uh, you know, some people don't remember their dreams. And we don't only dream in REM sleep. We can dream in non-REM sleep, too. Uh, and that's why I, I think they've taken away the term of dreaming just as a sleep mentation, because you can be in very light sleep and you can have some reverie and, and see some things going on. Um, but, you know, dreams appear to be fragments of previous memories, but there, there's a symbolism within it that is quite profound. And if you'll indulge me to, uh, to tell you a, a story about a colleague I saw who presented me with a dream that I found truly fascinating um, he said he was very disturbed by this, and he was at a party with a whole bunch of other doctors. And in the middle of this uh, party location, there was a big bonfire, and on top of the bonfire was a camel, uh, a, a camel. And it was standing there, <laughs> it was being burned, but it was just standing there chewing away, um, you know, at, at some some brush or whatever it was eating. And these other doctors were standing there with these huge knives, these machete type knives, carving pieces off this camel. And, and this colleague of mine said, he said, I was so distressed by this. He said, I was screaming at them, stop, stop, you can't do this. 
and and he said, can, can you help me try and identify, you know, what this all means? So I asked him, I said, you know, who were these other doctors? Were they colleagues of yours? He said, no. He said, I'm an internist, and these guys were radiologists. I said, well, okay, you know, what do radiologists mean to you? And he said, well, you know what, they don't do very much work, but they earn five times more than me. They're meant to teach. They don't teach. I do all the teaching. And, you know, he carried on and said, you know, there's this disparity in, in everything. And so I said to him, well, what does the camel mean to you? And he said, well, the camel is a beast of burden. It puts up with a lot of distress and, and goes, you know, for ages without any food or anything. And I looked at him and I said, so who is the camel? And he looked back at me and he said, oh, and he recognized that, you know, he was the camel. He was the one who was tolerating all of this, this performance that he had to do. And these other guys were just getting away with doing as little as possible. And the outcome of, of that was that he left that, uh, he left that uh, location and moved somewhere else. And, and, was, uh, and the last I heard, he was quite happy where he was. Um, so, I mean, obviously, mm -hmm. that, that is... Yeah, that's one person's dream. Uh, but, but we've all had dreams that are influential. They, they give us some perspective. We know that the, you know, the concept of sleeping on it has, has you know, been given one, an, an enormous amount of heft. We know that, that uh, the benzene ring, Kekula, the guy who, who decided that benzene was a ring, mm -hmm. he had a dream of a snake swallowing its tail. He didn't understand the structure of benzene. He woke up the next morning and said, that's it. It's a ring. And the same with Mendeleev, uh, you know, from the periodic table. Didn't know where some of the elements went. And he slept on it and it came to his consciousness. So part of the dreaming process, obviously, and part of sleep is, is to formulate concepts. And, and, you know, people know when they wake up, if, if, you, if you study something and you have a sleep, you will retain it much better. So, so dreaming certainly is, is one part of sleep medicine that is obviously very poorly handled because uh, trying to interpret dreams is, is not really a, a primary medical undertaking. It's, it's more of a psychology undertaking. Psychosis, yeah. Uh, yeah. But, uh, but, you know, it's the, the dreams are not really day-to-day -day events. They're embodied simulations, um, whereas a nightmare is really an emotional response to a non-existent threat. Uh, which is obviously a toxic form of dreaming. Um, and probably 70% of dreams we have have a negative content. Uh, why that is, you know, it's a, we should all reflect on it and, you know, look for the, the archetypes that come out during our dreams. Because through, you take various groups of, 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 of tribal people and you'll see there is a thread through all of their conceptual dreaming. And, you know, the, that so-called collective unconsciousness that is there no matter where you go, no matter where you're from. So there's something quite fascinating about all of this. It might even just be an evolutionary survival skill that even when you sleep, you're alert. And, and maybe, well, I mean, who knows? I'm, I'm speculating here like crazy now, but something, some noise you heard subliminally can put you into that mode. I don't yes. know. No, but absolutely. Yeah, you can't prove me wrong. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm not going to prove you wrong. But the, on the other hand, what you bring up is so important because sleep, once again, we go away from the analogy of sleep is not a light switch. We actually wake no. up every six minutes. We lighten our sleep, uh, come up to the surface, make sure it's safe. We go back down. And that's a normal finding. Right, right. It's definitely not the switch, the switch mechanism. Yeah. Um, I, I meant to touch on earlier the relationship between poor sleep and weight gain or perhaps difficulty in losing weight when sleep is poor. This has enjoyed quite a lot of airtime, uh, I would say, over the last 20 years. We, we didn't hear much about that before. Uh, do you, could you elaborate a bit on that, please? Yes. Um, certainly what we do know that there are two components to the sleep restriction, if you're purposefully restricting or if you're not sleeping well, the result is that there's the hunger hormone called ghrelin, mm -hmm. uh, which is not suppressed. And uh, you will recall when you were working the night shift uh, and at two in the morning or three in the morning when the night staff would bring along that lovely trolley with toast and, yeah. and, and uh, some type of beverage, 
we were ravenous. And, and so what we find is obviously with sleep restriction, the one thing it allows is, is a, a greater opportunity and more time to get up and go and raid the larder. Um, and the other thing is that it uh, clearly changes uh, the, the balance between leptin, the satiety hormone, and ghrelin, the hunger hormone, and, and they reverse. So we do find that, that shift workers, they, they gain a lot of weight when they work in the night shift. Uh, by and large, and with sleep restriction, you can anticipate weight gain as being one of the concomitants with it. You know, through we, uh, I, I've simplified the mechanism, of course, but uh, but it's largely due to the lack of suppression uh, of that hunger hormone. Mm-hmm. I can remember toast never tasted so good. Just yeah, I know. <laughs> in the slices. Um, Raymond, there's one thing, and if you indulge me this time, um, you know, I'm never sure if I should bring this up, but I'm old enough to remember the old style of personal computers. Um, years ago, I don't even know, don't ask me which year, but there were times they would almost grind to a halt because the system was apparently overloaded. And at such times, we were encouraged to reformat, not the hard drive. It's never a good idea to reformat the hard drive. Even I know that, but the computer itself. And this took several minutes. Now, this may resonate with some people, and you were treated, and I use that in inverted commas because it wasn't really a treat. You had these long colored columns that if you clicked on certain things, they would kind of telescope and implode into each other. So although the process was extremely tedious, they were curiously uh, satisfying in, in a way to see these tall columns implode because obviously the hope was there that your computer would speed up. And, you know, I've never forgotten about that. When I first saw that, it, I thought of sleep. I know that's just quirky, but and patients would often tell me through, you know, when I was trying to educate them about something, they'd say, oh, it's amazing. The brain is like a computer. And I used to always say, and often remember that very process, I would say, well, bearing in mind who, who invented what, it's more likely that the computer is like our mind. And um, I still when I've had a good night's sleep, I've tied those two together for some odd reason. And I spoke to my brother about it, who's older than I am by about two and a half years, and he has no recollection of that, whatever. So hopefully there's someone out there that will remember that maneuver that we were required to do so that our computers didn't grind to a halt, unless I just bought the, the, the wrong computer. But anyway... No, but uh, but uh, what what you bring up is is absolutely so valid for sleep and and brain repair because one one of the lovely discussions that was brought up uh, some years ago and I think they did these sentinel studies in at the university in Chicago where they looked at uh, what we call glymphatic flow the increase in cerebrospinal fluid uh, that is made in the brain that rinses products out of the brain. Uh, and again, excuse me for another analogy, but I, I liken the brain to Manhattan, uh, where, you know, if you don't clean out all the garbage that collects on the sidewalk, you're going to clog the place up and, and, and kill the neurons. You won't be able to get into the apartments. And in essence, that's what's happening during sleep. You're rinsing out those products that if they remain behind, they start gluing up the neurons and you start getting those tangles and those uh, fibrillary changes. And so we do recognize that chronic sleep restriction does appear to result in an earlier onset of of degenerative disease, you know, whether it's memory impairment of an Alzheimer's type or whether it can promote Alzheimer's, uh, don't really know. But certainly that process of what I call the car wash of the brain. Mm-hmm. It, it needs to happen and it happens with deep sleep at night. And so we do need to preserve that in the best way we can. Right. Absolutely. Um, certainly a, a lot to think, to think about. Um, yeah. Raymond, um, it was, it was wonderful having you here on Healthscape. I will certainly remember this as a memorable treat and uh, just to say that you and your analogies are always welcome on HealthScape. <laughs> Thank you very much for having me, Trevor. Most, most Lovely indeed. talking to you again. Okay. This is your host, Dr. Trevor Campbell from HealthScape, signing off. 
I've been speaking with Dr. Raymond Gottschalk, a sleep and respiratory medicine expert. Good night. Thank you for tuning in to Healthscape with Dr. Trevor Campbell. We hope you'll join us again next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and 12 noon Pacific Time or listen anytime on demand on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a healthy week.